Hey people, I'm Juba, a London-born, Essex-raised and Berlin-based DJ and welcome back to Series 2 of the Assurance Podcast. Last year, I released Assurance, the documentary that I made about the experiences of female DJs in Nigeria. After its release, I realised that there were so many other stories to explore and I wanted to continue the conversations that were started with the first documentary. In each episode, I'm going to be talking to inspiring women DJs in the global south and delving into their own personal journeys, their local music scenes and the impact of their social context on their careers and lives. Series 2 of the Assurance Podcast is sponsored by Adidas and Zalando as part of their Step Into You campaign, which is all about empowerment and confidently taking up space. For example, there's a huge problem with a promoter for sexual abuse and um, actually the solution that found the promoters was to put him to play with a lot of women. Oh, wait, wait, okay, wait. So you're a sexual abuser and so the solution is to (laughs) put you around loads of women? Yeah. Okay. Hello, wonderful people, and welcome back to the Assurance Podcast. This is Series 2, of course. And today I'm joined by Juliana. She's a DJ and activist from Medellin, Colombia, and she emerged in 2007 during the third wave of DJs in Medellin. And since then, she's played an important role in developing her hometown's electronic scene. She's also a co-founder of Echo, a platform that focuses on issues in electronic music in Colombia and was previously a part of NOT, or N-O-T-T, um, a platform that focuses on the role of women in Latin American electronic music. Hello, Juliana. How are you? Hey, hello. Everything good here? Uh, thank you so much for inviting me. When I say Medellin, I should be like Medellin, because I feel Medellin, like in Colombia, yeah. Medellin, you guys say, <laughs> I absolutely love the Colombian accent, or I guess there's various different accents in Colombia, but it's just so happy and just like, I know it's got a real bounce to it, I think. Yes, yes, actually, like <laughs> sometimes we're considered like uh, the most happy people in the world. I don't know why, but it's really? because... And and actually, that's I think is because we are like very welcoming all the time. Like that's why. No, I can definitely agree. And I am just watching you jealously um, from my concrete building in Berlin. And mm-hmm. you you live in a rainforest, right? Am I correct? Yes, <laughs> yes I live in Santa Elena, which is a small town, forty minutes from Medellin, and it's a big uh, and very humid forest. So I, I really enjoy to live here because it's very quiet. And after this situation with the pandemic, I prefer to live here than lockdown in the city. That's so true. Like you're isolating well, like you're really isolated, but also <laughs> yes. isolating in like nature. I keep on saying that I'm giving myself like two or three more years of living inside like the cities, like in a concrete world. And I want to run away to like live amongst nature. Honestly, one day I'm going to come and join you. When did you decide to run away to the forest? I decided uh, in May after my divorce. <laughs> oh, wow. like life changes, got a divorce, moved to the rainforest, you know, I don't yeah. know what else, like took up extreme sports. 
but actually I always wanted to live here to be honest and uh, it's actually forest and all this his magic actually is very healthy for the mind as well like the silence the quiet the nature it's very mm. helpful for all kind of situation especially for me in this situation and I live here with my dog and her name is Kuba and, and also she enjoys a lot to be here and sure be free I'm inspired by this. Honestly, I'm going to join you there. <laughs> if not in, in Colombia, somewhere, I'll find some rainforest in uh, in Europe if we still have any left because we cut all ours down like a hundred <laughs> years ago. It's not anyway. the same here, but uh, yeah. yeah, you're always welcome to come. Thank you. <laughs> all right. Well, I hope you're good anyway in general. I hope you're feeling happy, healthy today and ready for our chat. Super happy and ready. Yeah, and actually, like I told you, there's a really nice day today as well. So. So let's go. Let's go. Let's take that energy. So Juliana, um, you've been around for a while. You're very established and a very respected DJ, but going all the way back to your genesis, um, can you tell us when was the first time you touched a pair of decks? It was in my teenage years. I was like eight and 17 and actually my best friend took uh, DJ classes and I saw her and I found it like very interesting thing to do because at that moment uh, I didn't know what to do with my life. So (laughs) (laughs) we've all been there. We've all been there. (laughs) So she teached me how to DJ and actually wasn't, the perfect way to learn it because it was with some Gemini uh, 3500 which is like a super strange machine mm-hmm. but that kind of equipment was a common thing in my city probably in just in 2007 uh, was when I started to play like more professionally but mm-hmm. uh, I started at 2005 to learn and then just two years took me to learn good and then started to do some gigs okay that's quite interesting actually I'm gonna ask you about your first gig but I think most people that I've spoken to and myself as well um it actually was a quite short period between our first touching decks and our first gig so I think I first started playing with controllers and then maybe about five months later I played my first set which was terrible but (laughs) it's interesting that you took a long time to go from practicing to playing yeah because I'm kind of insecure Mm. that's the first thing and the second, I, I didn't have equipment at that moment and even headphones. So I always been very chill with that. My first gig was with some friends in a, like a small pool party that we did mm-hmm. in downtown Medellin. And it was just like a, 30 people went, but it was very special because it was like my first time. And actually I did good, I remember. And after that, one of those people that came to the party, booked me to his bar. So started like a little journey there. Actually, um, I was quite nervous and I remember that I didn't hear really good, but I did my best even with all the mistakes that I did. But actually my selection was like, like it was good. So that, that helped me to mm. develop like a better set. But after that, because actually just 
came the possibility to play more and practice because I was practicing at the same time that I was DJing. So for me, that was kind of hard. I didn't have the chance to buy my equipment, even headphones. My mom have a lot of brothers and sisters. <laughs> and so I, they helped me to buy the, actually the Sennheiser is the one I, I bought it in 2009 and I still have them and they're very important to me for that. Impre- okay. Okay. So all your family put money together to get your headphones. Uh-huh. I love that. That's also great that your Sennheiser's lasted for like 10 years. I'm obsessed with durability uh-huh. and like, things lasting forever <laughs> like I want my <laughs> headphones to last for my entire life and be passed down to my future generation so that's really cool um and also like it kind of shows a real kind of journey the fact that you started off you had this sort of really basic equipment you didn't even have headphones you had mm-hmm. to like have help from family around you to um to buy headphones so it like really is grafting like you really started from you know like the Drake song started from the bottom now we're here <laughs> like and it started <laughs> from like right from the from the ground up um because I've listened to some of your mixes and they're absolutely sick. So like, mm-hmm. I mean, you've been doing it for a while now. So I guess, you know, you've got the skills there. <laughs> yeah, I, it took me a while to the music I'm playing now. I actually started to play in another kind of music, like more progressive stuff and 2000 trans. It was a journey, actually, just when I live in Buenos Aires that I met more like bass music and that stuff. Mm. and I started to listen more music from UK then I just like I took almost five years closed in order to perfection what was the kind of music that I wanted to play or what I wanted to do with music as well because Mm. I was sick of how being woman and DJ here in Medellin so I I chilled down a bit I decided like okay this is what I want to do this is what I want to play so let's uh, focus on this. And obviously the technique is really important for me as well uh, because I'm a perfectionist bitch. Uh, so <laughs> <laughs> I don't think there's anything wrong with being a perfectionist. I think, you know, I mean, it can be put a lot of pressure on you, but it's also like a good quality, I guess. Yes, yes. But uh, yeah, but sometimes it's like too much. It's like, okay, yeah. I've got brain and I just want to enjoy the music yeah as long as you're not one of those annoying guys in the um boiler room comments those tech bros who are oh, like, oh yeah. my god you're redlining or oh my god she's like not mixing well whatever yeah then that's fine um but yeah I guess you mentioned about how tiring it was being a woman in Medellin um as a DJ but I, we're going to come to that later because we want to talk about the woman's experience in the sort of electronic scenes you've done a lot around that but yeah it's the development the growth is something I can relate to when I first started DJ and I was playing a lot more in London obviously and I was very much more in that sort of African Nigerian diaspora sound like Afrobeats mm-hmm. as well whereas now I've been living in Berlin for three years so inevitably my sound has been influenced by the sort of club and I don't know techno sounds I'm hearing out here so it's always mm-hmm. interesting it's exciting to see how your, your taste changes and to see who comes along with you so that's really cool. Juliana, um, I mean, you've run away to the mountains um, and you're kind of living in your own little world. But for people who are listening who may not know much about Colombia, um, like what's going on? What's the situation in Colombia? What is it like as a society? I know recently the world was made aware of protests that were happening across Colombia um, against like the government, against taxes. So, yeah, just like Mm -hmm. what is going on? Colombia is a really nice 
beautiful country, like you love it or you hate it. We have lived in violence for almost like 60 years now. In 2016, Colombia signed the peace agreement with the FARC guerrilla. And it was like a really important thing for us as a generation, but the generation before, like my parents and all, there was not we're like very happy with the decision because at the same point we are very influenced by United States and how this idiosyncrasy of the right wing have been developed to all Latin America. Mm. So there's still a lot of resentment. So that's why we cannot like heal very profound. So this year for one month and a half, I think, Colombia experienced humanitarian crisis due to police violence and the blindness of the institutions and the disregard of the traditional media, of course, because it's like very important how media treat uh, things. And the, cri- the crisis started with the national strike due a tax reform proposal that will affect most of the country's population. Well, the thing is, uh, mobilizations were like huge in Colombia. We were also in this pandemic situation. So people always also was like very tired of being at home. They were hungry. Mm-hmm. And, and well, so it was a lot of things mixed together. Mm. I mean, this was the context, but actually also the strike was a response to the health reform to the at least 21 victims of homicidal violence by the police to the non-compliance with the peace agreement signing in 2016, the lack of guarantees for the exercise of the defense of human rights. Um, and at least in 2016, like uh, 1,100 leaders were murdered. And, oh, wow. And also in 2020, there was around 178 femicides. In this year, just like 40. And so it's also like a lot of things, exclusion of rural ethnic communities. This was two months of hell. Mm. I stay at home. Actually, I didn't go outside because I was very afraid. And I was working more in the graphic area for this protest. At the end, I think what happened, and, and it's always how things resolve here in Colombia, is like uh, they open everything. Like, okay, we need that people chill. They need to get drunk. So, okay, let's back again and everything so now that it's like there's no covid there's no protest but there's parties interesting okay so <laughs> that's like it's like a kind of um how people are distracted like in the uk for example when there's i don't know political discontent then suddenly yeah. a big campaign comes that blames immigrants for the problems of the uk and you know we don't look at the problems of the government we look at like polish people taking jobs in england and mm-hmm. in colombia it's like when there's discontent, let's just distract people by opening up the clubs and parties and making them forget their problems. That's so (laughs) interesting because people will eventually go out and have fun. And then, I mean, I guess it works in a way. Yeah, it works and completely works. Here at least it worked because now is like May 2020 didn't exist in Colombia. Well, people forgot that. So, that happened but yeah. then is, is it like a short-term fix because it will happen again like it will come up again yeah definitely it will and actually there's a lot of things happening right now because uh 
this government has been really bad it's even for the ones who vote for them <laughs> it's mm. like, oh my god it's like oh my god it's like a sketch of a government i don't know what is going to happen in the future especially with the culture area like everything that involved art because of course all the budget was a lot of things go to the corruption and uh, also to buy weapons and stuff to mitigate uh, the strikes to weapons against their own people because i saw that in the reports like police armed vans were going around and shooting people um it's crazy because yeah you were talking before about the guerrilla warfare Mm -hmm. and how that was like 60 years of violence in colombia um and it's weird because like when i've been to places like argentina colombia they they feel very much like protest nations people are constantly protesting against like Mm -hmm. what's going on but mm-hmm. it almost seems like there's still a constant state of like I don't know frustration but simultaneously you go to countries like Colombia and like it just seems like people enjoy life and they're happy and they're out and they're mm-hmm. partying so it's this weird contradiction of living in like a place where there's so much to complain about but simultaneously yeah. people also really enjoy life I don't know it's hard to explain uh, yeah it's it's, it's there's this dichotomy that I told you that sometimes like you hate it and you love it we are very resilient people I mean that's the word. Mm, resilient. We've been looking at Colombia in the recent months and sort of all the things that led up to the protests and the protests that happened and now everyone's out partying again. But yeah. kind of looking into that, like tell us about how, what is the music scene like for you in Medellin, in, in Colombia? What are the music scenes like? How does Colombian society impact the sort of music scenes that you're aware of? Colombian scene is like... Um... I think it's kind of new and it's actually, well, not new. Well, I mean, 25, 30 years now. And it's been very elitist because, well, since the beginning, the records here were imported, of course. So, of course, the people that could do that was people that uh, earn more money. Right now, it's like a big, big circuit here. And especially in Bogota and Medellin, um, Cali is also like a really good place. At a certain point in 2000, Cartagena and the north in Colombia was also very like uh, influenced by another kind of music, like more commercial stuff, but there were parties there. And right now, like uh, especially the center of Colombia, like I told you, Medellin, Bogota, Armenia, Pereira have like a very energetic scene. It's kind of different even between Medellin and Bogota. For example, Bogota is more elitist than Medellin. In mm. Medellin, you can find different kind of people in the same parties, you know, and also in, in Cali, for example. And I don't know, it's like also how the cities get built. Our circumstances here in Medellin were completely different than in Bogota. We grew up with the cartel of Pablo Escobar and the things have been influenced us, have been completely different than in Bogota, for example. And the people from Bogota always been like the ones that travel and study and stuff like that. The biggest universities are there. Mm. That's why I think all these things get related and also uh, develop like a, a difference. I'm interested to hear though. You were saying about how the guerrillas and the um, and Pablo Escobar and that sort of stuff influenced Medellin mm-hmm. and the music scene. How did that influence the Medellin music scene? It was like normal that narcos bring records, especially freestyle from Miami. 
to Medellin. So during the end of 80s and beginnings of 90s, there was like a huge uh, freestyle movement here in Medellin. It was all this because the could bring the record service. And that was the kind of music they liked, you know, the minor stuff. This kind of dynamics in between how the narco culture works create like the perfect environment to bring new stuff to our country. That is so fascinating to me. Like I would never thought that the cartels and Pablo Escobar directly impacted Medellin's music scene. Like to me, that is definitely a topic for like an academic thesis. Like <laughs> the impact of the guerrillas, cartels and Pablo Escobar on Medellin's electronic music scene. I think that's really fascinating. It's not like fun and you know kind of light-hearted because it was a it's a very traumatic element of like I guess Medellin's culture but it kind of also is part of the history um and it had an impact and brought like sort of Miami music I mean I whenever I talk to people who are based in South America I sound so annoying because I'm always referencing my time when I was there but I remember <laughs> when I like when I lived in Ecuador um I remember <laughs> how much stuff had to be imported from the USA it was really hard yeah. to get things like sort of from like especially electronic and music-based stuff like it was even in 2000 like 13 or whatever it was really hard to get it from within the country so yeah I can imagine actually that elitism that you mentioned as well because it's like who has access to expensive vinyls and music that comes from the USA Mm -hmm. it's like rich kids or people who are like kind of from upper class but I guess now with things like the internet mp3 soundcloud Mm. all these things hopefully it makes it a bit easier for music to be enjoyed or be more accessible to people from all different classes Yeah, but actually at the beginning it was only smuggling. That's how enter the music from Cartagena and then go inside the country. And right now, yeah, thanks to internet. Internet helped us a lot with mm. the globalization <laughs> where people also buy music. It's kind of expensive. I used to have a record store in Medellin with my ex-husband and... Uh, it was really hard because it, it was expensive to import the records. And also for people here, it was very expensive to buy them because it was like, okay, should I buy one record or should I save this to buy uh, food? And also the equipment here, it's currency is like four times difference and with the dollar. So imagine to have uh, CDJs, for example. Oh my gosh, or, of course. Yeah, even yeah. I think even for you are expensive. I mean, I mean, for me that yeah, of course. I mean, I have some that I, I put like I think my CDJs that I have at home were probably the biggest single investment that I've made in recent years. I love them, <laughs> but they weren't cheap, so I can only imagine how much harder it is over in you know Colombia or something. And I guess yeah, speaking to a lot of these other DJs that I've spoken to on the podcast, it really shows that sort of divide and that privilege that people like myself in Germany or the global north have when it comes to music and equipment. I really don't think twice about being able to go to a record store to get an, a, yeah. a vinyl or to get a song and download the music on, I don't know, Bandcamp and buy an equipment. Or, for example, go into clubs and every club has CDJs, you know? Yeah, yeah. I, I just remembered when I record a podcast for Resident Advisor, they always asked for, like, a picture of the place you record <laughs> yeah. the, the mix. And I have to rent a place to record the mix because, of course, I didn't have I yeah, don't have sure. to. So it's like, okay, I, I don't send you pictures. <laughs> <laughs> like, sorry, don't do that over here. Actually, quickly, before we go to like talk about women in music, you were talking about even how the pandemic has 
left, say, you know, Colombia or like the global south, um, you know, where you are sort of separated from the north because the interest or the the attention has sort of like stopped, whereas before there was a lot of movement happening? We get very isolated and very disappointed because it was at a certain point before this global crisis, we were like a very interesting growing scene for festivals, magazines, and of course, bigger names. And so that's why I get conversations with some other friends from the continent, from Chile, Brazil, Argentina, Mexico. And we started to see that and to notice that to talk about Latin America, we are always expecting that people from outside talk about Latin America and not us. We always wanted to be like, I don't know if the word is recognize, being recognized for what we do. But at the end, what the first one that have to recognize themselves are us. We started to focus on that and we are like building something together. Has been kind of, yeah, not surprising, but to find this bridges between the global north and the and the south is very very frustrating actually mm. very frustrating yeah i think um there is that issue with like recognition only kind of being relevant when it comes from the you know europe and north america and i think mm-hmm. we need to change that um focus and emphasis and as you say we need to rate ourselves for i say ourselves but like people need to rate themselves first before they kind of look for their external mm-hmm. acceptance and i think that's one thing that i really enjoyed about for example the recent wave of um west african like afro beats and stuff that mm-hmm. actually a lot of the validation came from nigerians and Ghanaians and stuff and yeah now it's come out to the rest of the world but actually we were pushing our sound and excited about our sound before resident advisor or you know dj mag found out about it so i think that's really mm-hmm. important Tell us about women in your scene in Medellin. I know you've previously done a lot of work to sort of push um, or make space for women in electronic music in Colombia. And there have been various issues around that that you also discovered whilst trying to work on it. So, yeah, what has it been like and what's it like now? When I started, uh, hmm, there was a really lack of female uh, artists, I mean, o- not only DJs, also VJs or agents. It was the 2000s, so it was like the end of this narco culture, mm. but there were still like little sparks in the in the air. And when, especially when the city where I live, Medellin, we as women have been grown with this idea of the Latina, woman Latina, you know, like a uh, the the one that you being care of your or your man we were more treated like objects than women so at a certain point at that time in 2000s the DJs that were playing there was just performing for men like uh, they were dressing especially like showing everything and they have like this middle uh, show and whatever it was so hard and of course I was starting to play at that moment and I was in my university so I was with Converse and bags and I remember that somebody <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> somebody told me at the one gig like hey you're you are very pretty you should take advance of that and maybe show a little bit more oh god yeah, so that that was like the thing in that time. Mm. After that, I left. I I was super tired because 
I didn't get a lot of bookings because I was woman at that moment. So it was like, no, you're not enough good DJ. Or sometimes there was a guy that told me like, uh, women are not good DJs. They're not prepared. So go home. And I was like, oh, wow. Literally go home. Like without even giving you a chance. Yeah. He didn't give me a chance. So I was like super tired I, I was playing with cds that time and i gave it to my mom the cd she gave them to her gymnastic teacher <laughs> <laughs> nice nice and, and then i left to buenos aires and then i just like i told you like five years i took me to heal with music because at the end it was not the problem about the music the problem was the industry so when I came back to Colombia, I joined with two friends of that time and we started a collective called Not because uh, we wanted to make more visible the women that were playing and they were doing music. I'm not part of the collective anymore, but it was a really interesting exercise to build like a database of women that were doing things. And right now, things are completely different. Medellin, not too much because this city especially... It's like a very macho thing. We're still fighting that. But at least Bogota and other cities, the thing is different. And now you can find at least uh, in the same lineup, one or two women playing as well. So that's very important. But I think it's still working because at a certain point, I mean, like the biggest promoters, you know, the ones that are doing festivals and all this stuff, they're more doing things like this just for the the tokenization thing and, and also there is like a stereotype of just to put play beautiful girls and I'm not happy with that because at least there's a, a lot of women that are doing great things here just because it's like the same thing that I was going in 2000 it's important to also be very critic of our part in this industry as women I mean and, and also not to be objectified. I don't know how this word is in English. Objectified? Yeah, you're right. Objectified, yeah. <laughs> Objectified. Have and you got like Google there that you're also, you're yeah, like translating? Translate <laughs> <laughs> I know the feeling though. There's just like one word and it throws off your entire sentence. And you're like, wait one second, let me just get it. Oh, yeah, objectified. Yeah, I feel you. Don't worry, go for it. And yeah, because not, right now it's like, there, uh, for example, there's a huge problem with a promoter for sexual abuse and. Um, Actually, the solution that found the promoters was to put him to play with a lot of women. Oh, wait, wait, okay, wait. So you're a sexual abuser, and so the solution is to put you around loads of women. Yeah. Okay, so what? That's why I say, like, objectified. I, I want to be clear, because it's like, oh, yeah, no, no, This the problem is because we have a sexual abuser here, so let's put him to play with a lot of women. Yeah, that's um a very in I say interesting way of going about it. It's like yeah, it's weird. It's like I think a lot of us are aware of these conversations, and we're more aware that we need to have like you know better gender representation on lineups mm-hmm. or in every industry. But it's about how authentic it is, and like sometimes there's things that were happening back in the day, and it's almost like they're still happening now, but we just create a different narrative to justify them in a way. Like I don't know, and it, it's it's hard to kind of have an opinion either way because you know once upon a time women were being objectified in the industry you had to be a sexy dj to get a job Mm -hmm. but now at this current day it's like sometimes 
objectification can be seen as empowering if the woman is doing it herself. But if it still means that if you're a good looking DJ, you're more likely to get a job, then is it empowering? I don't know. It's a question to ask, you know? Yeah. And also I will add, well, at least here, it's also like uh, this stereotype of the white woman. We have like a complete diversity here in our country. So it's the ones that get all the time the bookings. It's like women that are white or blonde, uh, not very in how we the Colombians look <laughs> and it's yeah, like yeah yeah I know exactly what you mean like what you see on tv and media and the people that are exposed or represented as Colombians or even Brazilians compared mm-hmm. to what Colombia looks like you'd be so surprised when you go to the country and realize mm-hmm. that like most of the population is like brown or black yeah. you know and not yeah. just white yeah okay so there's also like racism issues and like colorism that plays into it as well with women it's also related with this elitist idea that I told you before, because also there's not, even men, uh, there's not many black DJs here, for example, in Medellin, even women or men. And it's something I can say that's probably because of the lack of opportunities and also because of how these music have been developed in the rich families or something like that. So that's why I started to think in some other things like more globally as a community than just focus on on women especially because I found that there's a lot of social and economic issues in our territory and you have to go deeper to find like the deeper problems that have built us as a society. I think that's a really fair point that, um, yes, women in music is a conversation that's happening, but in places like Colombia, it isn't just about women, it's about class, it's about access. Mm-hmm. And also, yeah, DJing is a kind of, it's a weird, almost elitist career. It's a kind of almost a privileged career in a way, like to choose to be a DJ, especially maybe in somewhere like Colombia or Medellin, where mm-hmm. um, it, it, people aren't necessarily in positions of much economic stability. So to choose to be a DJ is like, who's doing that? The rich white kids. <laughs> you know? Yeah. Yeah. Actually, right now you see that in everywhere, in every corner. Mm. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. and I think that's why you were saying with not like when you started doing it you focus on women but then you realize that it was not just about women like you wanted to expand it to everyone really yeah yeah because we we started to give like free workshops for women uh, because we found that women were like they were more afraid to learn technology and well all the things to produce and or or even to do visuals but they were like free workshops and almost like 90% of the guests were men. And we were like, okay, what's happening here? And we felt bad to say like, no, because a lot of people that go to that kind of workshops, they were like people that couldn't pay like a proper place to learn. So they realized that the problem was deeper, that the access to education here in our country, it's very hard and we have to build like some other kind of ways to share knowledge and also to build community because the real community is there. For me, that's very important to build community outside the party is the real, like the real heart and base of everything. I mean, the party is like the big catharsis, but outside like everybody learning and like creating connections really nice or working on their art is like really important. And also having the chance to work as a musician here is like a privilege. 
I like what you said. I think that's a really good uh, way to sort of end this section when you're saying about building community outside the party and how the party is cathartic, but at the same time, there's so much more that needs to be done in communities. But I also appreciate how music can be a means of the outreach and can be a means of like enriching communities, which mm-hmm. I think is really, really powerful. Series two of the Assurance podcast is sponsored by Adidas and Zalando as part of their Step Into You campaign. This is all about women taking up space and self-empowerment by empowering others. So in this section, I like to focus on confidence and like how you've taken up space throughout your career. So the first question, I guess, to inspire people who are listening, how have you found in your career that you've been able to occupy space and like yeah, take up space in your career. How have you done that? I think that where's ways to collaborate. I earn space in the scene, collaborate with others, like working with some other friends, throwing my own parties, works with some other collectives, try to open com- conversations in the city that was hard to talk at some point. And it's also like collaborate with the people that resonate with you, with what you want to create and what you want to visualize as an artist or as a collective whatever yeah I think collaboration is really key I mean I wouldn't probably be DJing in the way that I am if I wasn't sort of brought along by two other people who I started Mm -hmm. learning with um and you see so much power in like collectives and the sort of that group mentality Mm -hmm. so I Mm -hmm. think there's so many people who have their ideas but like when you come together with others there's just so many other ways to push ideas or to like make things happen and maybe someone has a certain skill and another person has a different skill like you're an illustrator and someone else like can have more of like a proactive business brain and someone else can have more of like Mm -hmm. the creative vision like musically and I think doing that kind of stuff together the strength in numbers is really really helpful and um Mm -hmm. I think especially like in communities or yeah in places a lot of the time collective and collaboration are also ways for marginalized groups as well to like make a stand and like be heard so you know there's so many like women heavy or women based or queer or lgbtq or like gender based like collectives and groups that push narratives Mm -hmm. and push um conversations Mm -hmm. which are really really important so i think that's a really good idea actually yeah definitely i mean uh here we started to get more recognition as a scene in Colombia since we started to collaborate even in two cities and especially also like cities from the periphery, periphery. Oh, periphery, yeah. Periphery, and which is our very small towns with our very vibrant scenes and also like collectives from LGBTQB. Uh, community, especially in Bogota, which are, I think, are the biggest ones. When we started to work on that, people like started to see more what we do, how this DJ plays, how these parties go, or who are, like, for example, us with Echo, we also work with some other collectives to, to make some kind of protocols for the parties or even mm-hmm. uh, workshops and stuff like that. It's also a very alternative scene. Of course, there's like another scene, like more business stuff, which is I'm not interested in that. But in like in the underground scene, it's, it's really nice how things have been developed in the last four years. Nice. Yeah. Collaboration and collectivity, very important. More, you know, power in numbers, strength in numbers, and so much more can be done. It's just also like 
um, encouraging when you know that there's people who are maybe aligned with your vision that you all want to do the same thing or you all have like a, a vision that you want to achieve and you can help each other mm-hmm. achieve that which is really cool um and I guess like I was going to ask you what motivates you what inspires you but I guess you almost answered it like yeah. you know what <laughs> inspires you to go along to do what you're doing yeah actually my inspiration I, I never like found this like a very individual career like a lot of people like oh yeah I want to be a DJ it was very organical for me and I love the music but I really like to share with people the motivation and actually is like create things and right now I'm still like doing stuff outside the music that's the things that I really enjoy the most and even I like to throw parties but right now with the pandemic situation I'm not mm-hmm. very focused on that but yeah yeah throwing parties is fun but it's also so much stress <laughs> like yes so, but it can be cool like I think once again talking about the collective idea like because I throw parties with my uh DJ friends in Boko Boko it's just so much easier to do it with other people because you can divide the sort of um responsibilities and pressures and actually enjoy it more um mm-hmm. doing my own parties by myself oh my god no and <laughs> yeah like also yeah doing things outside of music is also cool as well because I think it keeps it refreshing because if your entire life is music, like your hobby, your work, everything, it's just a bit much, you know? And then your yeah. friends and your social circles, God, yeah. Yeah, it's too much. I mean, for me, sometimes it's too much. Also, like work, mm-hmm. normal, normal day job, throwing parties, DJing, doing music as well. Uh, your other projects outside, like you with this podcast or me with the eco. And, and, <laughs> and that's it's like, a lot. Um, we're tired yeah. that's all the sleep oh my god um I love sleeping um and yeah just to look into the what you do are, or anyone else around you as well you've mentioned the collaboration among cities so are there any organizations or people that you want to shout out who are doing really important things in the music scene you know for women in music but also just generally as well uh, here in, in Latin America there's some kind of really nice initiatives there's Ruidosas in Chile I uh, also hear uh, Todo Poderosas, artists like Lido Pimienta, which is she's an indigenous Colombian artist that lives in Canada right now. And also women that uh, have been built like a really nice career outside for me, especially Lucrecia Dalt. And uh, of course, uh, my friends from this woman also were very inspiring for us in certain points when I started not. And also when I just started ECHO with my friends here in from Bogota, which is a really interesting collective. It started with the pandemic and our idea is to bring conversations that are, are hard for Latin American seeing, like, uh, for example, not just general situation, also like the access to this kind of music, also the uh, sexual abuse, uh, drugs. Because we have a big issue with drugs and, of course, in our music. But uh, in Colombia, you know, like, uh, it's the first place of cocaine. I mean, and how mm-hmm. we, with the consumption, we also, like, support very bloody industry. That yeah, is I mean, I, I live in Berlin. I'm from the UK. These are, like, cocaine hotspots for enjoyment. Yeah. It's weird, isn't it? It's like, yeah, this is fun and this is for partying, but also, like, there's literally blood on your ha- in, on all of our hands. I say, oh, I don't do cocaine, but there's blood on the hands of us who enjoy this kind of yeah. stuff, but it's also so lighthearted. Like, yeah, it's a bit of fun. It's weird. Yeah, yeah, of yeah. course. And also, right now, we are currently working on a piece of how, with the pandemic, mental health is, like... Mm. Where it's like 
something that people get realized that we need to care. Definitely. And and we have noticed that now in the parties, the people are like getting very crazy. So we are kind of worried about how is developing these issues right now. Has been really nice to to build like this project and also we are very good friends. So it's like very beautiful to bring these conversations. Also, sometimes we don't find the same point of view. So it's like really helpful and interesting how we can grow with different points of view or mm-hmm. even and, and also bring the conversations to the electronic scene. We're going to do also some trainings for clubs and for collectives to oh, nice. to build the safety spaces in their parties and yeah nice nice you're doing a lot of stuff man that's really cool um no it's really great to shout out all of these organizations and people that are doing great stuff in music just as a quick reflection upon your career looking back at your career and sort of the lessons that you learned what knowledge do you think you would impart to like your younger self as they were mm. starting out mm. That's really interesting. Hmm. Actually, I I feel that I was patient, but I think more patience and more patient to to build like your career, and also try to work with some other people. I was very alone when I started, so actually, just six years later, I started. I start to work with some other people. And actually, right now, I think all of us, we need more patience than before because <laughs> like people think that everything is like right now and fast and you have to be somebody at some point and like, no, just enjoy the flow. Mm. Enjoy the moment. A bit of patience is good. I think, yeah, they're definitely, I mean, we live in, I'm always like anti-capitalist whilst also probably being really <laughs> capitalist in the amount of stuff that I have. But yeah, like I, we live in a system that makes us think we need to produce now, now, now. And we live in this sort of like Forbes, I don't know, do you know Forbes 30 under 30? I don't know if you know about it, but it's like this no. whole, okay, so it's like Forbes, which is like this big, I don't know, economic magazine. Um, and it's like, basically it gives these rewards to people who do great things by the time they're 30. But it's just that kind of culture of like, um, almost like ageism, like things are really valuable if you do them quickly or if you do them at a young age. And it sort of creates that impatience and that nervousness about, I guess, just making sure you get everything done as soon as possible. I don't know. Whereas Uh, actually things can also be valid past that, you know? Yeah, and we live with the American dream here, you know, this Mm. big influence from... United States so it's like uh how you becoming a famous DJ as well that's what I'm noticed right now but what mm-hmm, mm-hmm, definitely that kind of yeah um that push for just sort of like fame money the, I don't yeah. know the adrenaline yeah it's a it's a it's the trappings of the system that we live in um mm-hmm. yeah ma'am which is why you've run away to live in a forest. Oh, <laughs> yeah, that's why. that's why I decide to isolate myself here. Honestly, <laughs> you're onto something. You're going to live long and healthy without the stress of this bloody world that we live in. So on to the last section now. We are nearly done. I want you to share with me a moment in your career when you had a no moment, when you doubted your decision to become a DJ. 
it's crazy. I, I think I all the time have this kind of decision because sometimes it's like really hard to be to leave as a DJ here. But definitely when I finished my school, my university, I when I graduated, I, I was like, yeah, no, this is like a hobby and I'm not going to make it about this because there's no support and whatever, whatever. And I doubt a lot. That's why I decided to give my music to my mom. And well, at the end, I just heal and focus back again. Mm, okay. So it's like a an, an ongoing process of like, yes, no, yes, no. Like you're not necessarily... Mm-hmm. I guess yeah. that's yeah I guess it's good that you're honest about it to be honest because I think sometimes it's like people don't want to admit that they continually have insecurities um in their mm-hmm. career when actually a lot of us do all the time yeah. and we question our decision <laughs> yeah all the time I question myself like should I do this and even if you have a bad gig oh yeah you can ask like oh why I'm doing this mm-hmm. oh, I am doing this but it's oh, just yeah, like sure. a moment. It's just a thought at the end. It's just like a, yeah. a little piece of thought and you just observe and let it go. I've definitely had moments when like I've been, especially like there was a period, I think not last year, but the year before or the last year we played before like COVID and mm-hmm. about four of my gigs in a row were just like empty empty gigs and part of me was like okay well this is just easy money I guess because I'm playing for nothing you know but mm-hmm. at the same time I was like wait a minute why am I like this isn't fun. like I don't know I don't want to be coming out of my house at like 2 a.m to play to an empty dance floor like it's just not really I don't know like do I enjoy this right now so I, I've had those moments especially when gigs aren't like great when you're yeah. like oh. Yeah, me too. Yeah. Me don't know if too. I want to be here, definitely. Mm-hmm. But on a on a brighter note, what have you had like a specific yes moment, like a, something that happened that made you think, yeah, I've really, I'm really happy that I decided to DJ. Ah, uh, there was a party, like uh, one of my favorites closing sets, actually, and I think was was the first closing set I did. I think it was 2016, mm, and um, it was so good, and it was with my friends I mean like the best parties are with the friends actually I can say and also like when I have the chances to travel to be honest my dream when I was a kid was to travel around the world and actually if I'm not doing this I will not going to one of those places that I visited before yeah I definitely get what you mean I also have a massive uh, wonderlust or wonderlust I don't know which accent I'm gonna say in let me say English I've got a massive like wonderlust wonderlust oh my god wonderlust oh my god (laughs) wonderlust because because it's a German word but now I'm how do I say in English like wonder wonderlust (laughs) <laughs> anyway <laughs> you know what I mean that word like wanderlust or I enjoy traveling let's just say it that way I enjoy traveling um, and mm-hmm. exploring and I think yeah I've also used DJing as a way to like keep that up because I had my whole like gap year times and after university I traveled a bit but for me DJing like whenever I get a gig in a different city or different country I always try to ask if I can sort of have an extra day or two in the place so I can actually like explore because um, mm-hmm. it's really nice and I don't necessarily like it when you go to a DJ in a new country or a new city you go there you DJ and you go straight home like no like if I'm in Norway let me see what Oslo or Bergen is like it's a chance to explore it you know so yeah definitely I second that now to the last section um I want you to I've, I don't know if you can read one out or remember one but I always like to finish off the show with a bit of a, a positive message that you may have received from someone who's seen you DJ or who yeah, like, followed you as a DJ. 
Oh, I have two stories. One, it was in in a club in Germany. A guy gave me um like a small little note and he wrote me like I was changing his night and thanks to me because he was like a kind of sad and now it's like a super happy and then and he was thanking me for that and I was like, Oh, that's cute. I'm still like impressed about this uh, other story that I'm going to tell you. And, and this was last year during the pandemic. I remember that the New York Times did a, an article about uh, the situation in Colombia with the pandemic. Here, the, the bridges between the poor and the rich are way bigger now than before. And a lady from UK, and if you are listening to this, I want to thank you for that, uh, uh-huh. wrote me and told me that she read this article and that she remembered that her favorite DJ was from Medellin, Colombia, and she saw the news, uh, so she sent me for over three months to thousand uh, pounds. Oh, Wow. Uh, that for that was like yeah literally just don't leave the music she wrote me but uh, this for me is like the just the ten percent of my salary <laughs> oh my gosh wow <laughs> and and she gave me uh, during three months like uh, each month two two hundred uh, pounds wait two hundred mm-hmm. or two thousand two two hundred wow that's really kind. Yeah, really, from 200 pounds in Colombia, I mean, you know what I do with that a lot. Wow. So it was, I was very thankful because, uh, like a little angel, because at that moment I was in completely anxiety. I didn't know what to do. It didn't have money and this suddenly appeared. Out of nowhere, just 200 pounds. Yeah, she wrote me on Facebook. She just only listened to my Resident Advisor podcast. She never, because I never went to UK, but but she told me, I just love this. This is one of my favorite DJ mixes, and I want to help you because I don't want you left music. So thank you for that if you listen to this. Thank Um, you to whoever that was that sort of, you know, sent out (laughs) that lifeline to you for a while. Um, And that's really nice. I mean, it shows also that you must have touched her in a very special way for her to want to send you that and to want you to, like, stay making music so much that she sent you 200 mm-hmm. pounds a month um and it's like that's not necessarily a written message but it's like a it's a gesture it's a really nice gesture yeah. that you didn't yeah. ask for that you didn't expect uh-huh. and that makes a big difference because as you say that money can go a long way so that's really beautiful and it's just nice to see people um around the world like helping people out and like I guess it's almost like investing in artists and communities that they think add value in some way so you know mm-hmm. thank you to her yeah yeah, thank you so much. Oh, uh, maybe maybe she'll listen to this um, if she sees that you're doing it, and then you know she'll you know maybe message you again and be like, "Hey, thanks for the thank you. Here's a thousand pounds." I know you can just keep on thanking her every like couple of months. Like, I'm so grateful to that woman, and then get more money. No, uh, but yeah. <laughs> Yeah, yeah. Well, that was really nice. That was a nice positive note to end on. Um, And Juliana, I have to say, we've come to the end of our chat. It was really, really insightful. I felt like I learned a lot. Um, And I feel like I have a real sort of perspective on the different nuances of Colombian society, of Latin America, of Medellin, how the history has impacted the music scene. Um, how gender mm-hmm. relations work and yeah just really um really really been interesting to also learn about yourself and your your career as well 
Oh, thank you so much. I'm so happy always to, to share conversations and knowledge. Thanks for you for inviting me uh, and being very receptive and open to, to these stories. Thank you, Juliana, and goodbye. Goodbye. So this has been the Assurance Podcast, a follow-up to my documentary that explored the experiences of female DJs in Nigeria. Assurance, the documentary, focused on women in Lagos' music scene, but overall, Assurance is all about spotlighting voices away from the European and North American club scenes, which tend to dominate in conversations around gender and representation in music. And helping me share this empowering conversation have been Adidas and Zalando, who sponsored this podcast as part of their Step Into You campaign.